0: Good morning everyone. It's really good to
1: see you and good to be back with you. I loved hearing Jim's story, his testimony as he calls it, about being in Gethsemane. And I have to say, Jim, you must have been there on a Saturday morning because I can't think of any other time when it's quiet. That place is right by a major road and I, in fact, I was standing in the Garden of Gethsemane one time and, you know, it was surrounded by that wall and you can hear the traffic and the horns honking and everything and you know the sound of, of uh, when two cars hit each other that blunt crunch just crunch. I Heard that when I was in Gethsemane and I thought ah boy That is gonna ruin somebody's day, but I thought about how Jesus was uh, probably experienced very much the same when he was in Gethsemane. On the outside is all of this turmoil and yet on the inside, there's peace, and there's a connection with the Father. Of course, uh, another garden that uh, Dennis uh, implied, at least by his returning, uh, is, the, is the garden uh, tomb, the area that honors the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and uh, his death. And I, what I love about the garden tomb and always taking tours there is uh, they share the gospel. Share the gospel. I've never been there that I haven't heard the gospel. And there's not another place that I'm aware of in uh, all of the Holy Land that is committed to sharing the gospel with those who come in. So definitely be in prayer for, uh, for all that's going on in Israel, beyond simply peace, but also to spiritual life. When uh, Kathy and I were in Cork, Ireland a couple months ago, I heard about a local newspaper that the town had, and not long prior to that, they, uh, they had a, kind of a really surprising and sort of frightening incident in their town, and the headline of the newspaper read this, Drugs, guns, and stolen cash found behind the local library. <laughs> the article goes on to say that townspeople were absolutely shocked when they heard this news, because they had no idea that their small town had a library. <laughs> oh, I loved that. And I thought about what a fitting picture that is, and it's become for our world. We're no longer shocked by the things that should shock us. We're shocked, we're unaware of the things that we should know. On the other hand, we read our own headlines and we see a world in desperate need of Jesus Christ, not just of peace, but of the Prince of Peace, the one who can make peace, who causes peace. In fact, the only thing that's ever going to bring peace, or at least a permanent peace in the Middle East, will be when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, at his second coming, when he comes, when he puts an end to the battle with the word and when he uh, begins the wonderful kingdom of God, and he rules on this planet from Jerusalem for 1,000 years, this we, is a wonderful hope that we have. So, but until then, we pray for the peace of Israel and ask uh, for our own lives as well um, for peace. Um, we also need the grace of God in our lives so desperately uh, and so clearly. It's described in the Bible, of course, and once we've embraced that message of the gospel, then we also have to share it with a world that desperately needs it. Because the gospel's goal is not just to get into our thick head, but is also to use us to share that message and to reproduce that message in the lives of many other people. That's a tough assignment, because we live in a world that is hostile. When we read the headlines, we just sort of read about things that seem to be going on at the surface level, or the political level, or the geopolitical level. But remember, there's also things happening on the spiritual level. In fact, so much of what's going on in the world, behind the scenes and unseen, is the prince of the power of the air doing his thing, Satan, influencing. Ever wonder why so many throughout history are anti-Semitic? Because Satan is anti-Semitic, and he hates God's people, and even though many of them, most of them, have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, he knows that there is a future for Israel, and that uh, his his, uh, futile attempt to continue to wipe them out is an attempt to wipe out the promise of God and the future of God. And secondly, it's not just the world that needs to hear the gospel, but even we who are saved need to continue to hear about the grace of God. It's so easy to sort of take it and then move on, as opposed to continuing to embrace the grace of God in our lives, because we need God's grace, not just to save us, but to keep us every single day as we walk with Christ. And the book of Titus is all about the grace of god not just god's grace in our lives to bring us to salvation but especially the grace of god in our lives after that what difference does grace make in our lives once we're saved i think we could all say what it means to get us saved but what does it mean after we're saved this is what the book of titus answers so Let's look there together at the book of Titus. We're going to spend the next six weeks or so in this small book that has these two major themes, the grace of God and then what difference that grace makes in our lives. Most of the books in the New Testament bear the names of the author. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Peter, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. These are books that reflect the author. We can't really do that with Paul. Paul wrote 13 books. You know, we don't say, you know, 1st Paul, 2nd Paul, 13th Paul. It's like, was it 12th or 13th Paul that we're supposed to turn to? So in Paul's books, instead of the author, we talk about the recipient. And like Timothy, like Philemon, like the Romans. These are those who received the letter. And Titus, of course, is the same. Who is Titus. Titus was written to Titus. Who is Titus? He's never mentioned, interestingly, in the book of Acts. Is it hot in here to anybody else? Ha! Oh, good grief. Let's just start taking clothes off. Maybe someone will turn on some air conditioning. Do we have the means by which we can cool off this room? You tried already. All right, well, but you know, I'm sorry. It's just got to happen. Because I'm going to be sweating like, like a pig. Yeah, doors are opening. I don't think opening the windows would help much, but, ugh. You know, let's just go all the way here. <laughs> Spent ten minutes on that tie. <laughs> oh. So anyway, Titus. Who is Titus? He's not. He's never mentioned in the Book of Acts. But we do find him in the book of Galatians, and you may remember that the book of Galatians was written after the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. And in that book, he mentions that he took Titus with him, but Titus was a Greek or a Gentile who was not compelled to be circumcised, which was a major theme of the book of Titus, that is, that we're saved simply by the grace of God apart from the law. So he brings Titus in as an example of one who... um, was, was saved, who has faith in Christ, but he hasn't been circumcised. So there's, there's that sense. And this was the year A.D. 47, right after Paul's first missionary journey. And before we actually look at the text here of Titus, keep your place there, but turn to the back of your Bible or wherever the maps are. I almost have to apologize for you on the sake of whatever map you're about to look at, because Bible maps and Bibles... Are near as good as an atlas, but we didn't all bring our atlases. So look at your, look at your uh, map of the missionary journeys of Paul. Mine has one map for all three journeys, and then they cram in the journey to Rome at the bottom. So it's, uh, it's pretty tight. But you might find the third missionary journey of Paul. So look at the third journey of Paul. See if you can find that. And if you just follow it, Uh, Mine begins, as yours should as well, with Paul at Antioch. And you can tell this is uh, Asia Minor or modern Turkey. Every single one of Paul's missionary journeys goes through Turkey. In fact, uh, did you know that half of the New Testament was either written to or from Turkey? It is a very significant area in the life of Paul. starts at Antioch. He heads west. And he goes retracing his steps along the first journey. He revisits all those churches. Then he goes all the way to the, to the west, to Ephesus. And you remember in Acts, he spends a good deal of time at Ephesus. He leaves there and then heads all the way north up through the churches of Revelation, which of course weren't written at that time yet. But he heads up north and gets to Troas. And then he heads over and crosses over into what we call today modern Greece or Macedonia. And it's there in Macedonia that he writes 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, he mentions Titus again. So we haven't heard about Titus since uh, the book of Galatians some seven years earlier. And now we read about Titus. He's mentioned, I believe, nine times in the book of 2 Corinthians. And so we, we read that he is very significant in the life of the Apostle Paul. And then, of course, if we were to continue to trace his journey, he goes uh, down to Corinth, stays there for a bit, and then goes to Jerusalem from there. And when he goes to Jerusalem, of course, this is when he is arrested. He is uh, put on trial a number of times there, and then gets in a boat, and he heads to Rome as a prisoner. So now look at your map of Paul's journey to Rome. Mine's on the same page here, nice and small. And you just you follow Paul's journey in the boat as he's making his way to Rome. He leaves from Caesarea, goes around up to the bottom part of Turkey, goes to Myra, goes to Nidus, and then you notice they are blown south, or they head south right into the Mediterranean, and they go under or the south side of Crete, the island of Crete, and uh, you see. I hope it is mentioned there. It says fair havens. This is a a port that uh, Paul, his, his ship, went there. They tried to go farther west to Phoenix, but they were blown out into the Mediterranean, and that's when the great storm occurred that we read about where Paul ultimately lands on Malta, shipwrecked on Malta, and then the next spring makes his way north into Rome as a prisoner. So turn back to Titus. The reason that I had you look at those maps is because After Paul's release from his first um, Roman imprisonment, he travels more, and we know he does because he writes more after this time. Uh, During the first imprisonment, he wrote four books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, but we also have the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy and Titus, that are written after his first imprisonment. And he writes to Titus telling him, Uh, that he's left him on the island of Crete. So we know that Titus and Paul traveled to Crete. And I think it's neat, um, whenever I do, I have the privilege every year to lead tours in the footsteps of Paul. And when we go to Crete, uh, most of the tourists go to see a, a Minoan palace at a place called Gnosis, which is really pretty dull. And instead, we charter a bus, and we head south and go all the way to Fair Havens and look at where Paul landed, and then we go north to a place called uh, Gorton. In fact, I've got a couple pictures here for you. The first one, if, uh, John, you can throw that up there,
0: is Fair Havens. Uh, That's the second one. Let's look at the next one. The church is second. Yep. Yep. There it is. This is Fair Havens. This is the southern part of Crete.
1: So if you were to go there, you would see this beautiful harbor, and the ancient harbor is still there, so you could see the very space that Paul, in his Roman ship, would have come in on his way to uh, to Rome as a prisoner. And Paul told them, said, look, we better stay here. We better not leave. And they didn't listen to him. And as a result, they were thrown out into the, the, um, the shipwreck. And then when Paul comes back, he leaves Titus on the island. And look at the, the next photo that shows this basilica. This uh, church is called the Basilica of Titus. It's actually a 7th century church built to commemorate Titus and, and his, uh, his ministry on the island of Crete. And according to the church father Eusebius, Titus served as the first bishop or the first pastor of Crete, and he was also martyred on Crete, and this church was built over the place where Titus was killed, where he, the traditional site where he was killed and buried, is marked by this church, the Basilica of Titus. So all of that as an introduction takes us to Titus chapter 1
0: and... Verse 1. Let's look at that. Paul, a bondservant of God
1: and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Savior. So this is the introduction. Some of it you can by far recognize is very familiar in the sense of Paul sort of has this uh, pattern of writing But notice Paul calls himself first a servant, and then an apostle. First a servant, then an apostle. He gets first things first. And in this passage, uh, and and in several others, Paul expresses something that we should all feel. He is a servant, then he is an apostle. He is first of all grateful to what God has done and sees himself serving Christ. Paul is, as we've often said of ourselves, he is a turtle on a fence post. There's no way you can get there by yourself. The turtle had to be placed on top of the fence post. And we are that way. The the position that we have with Jesus Christ comes only by the grace of God. And the same was true of Paul. He has been entrusted, he said. What a beautiful word. Think about that. He has been entrusted with the greatest message in the world. And he tells us the purpose of this message. First of all, it's for the faith of those chosen of God. In other other words, those who will believe in Christ. It is for the faith of those chosen of God, the salvation of people. God promised this long ages ago in the Old Testament, but it appeared at the proper time. So God waited until time was just right and then uh, revealed Jesus Christ. And then there's a second reason, not only the, uh, the faith of those who would believe, but also, he says, and the knowledge that leads to godliness. The knowledge of godliness. And this is the Christian life. And here we have, in a sense, uh, Paul sort of uh, summarizing the whole book of Titus, or at least where we're going with it. That you've, got, you've got God's grace and salvation, but you've also got the knowledge that leads to godliness. What difference does that grace make in our lives? He tells Titus that uh, they have this in common. Even though Paul is an apostle, he says we have a common faith. We all came to Christ the same way. We all came by grace through faith in in Christ. Um, One of the things that uh, Paul is going to do He's going to tell him that his job here is, uh, verse 5, he says, "...for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you." So when Paul and Titus traveled to Crete, they obviously did some work, they did some establishment of, uh, of churches there. But he says, now you need to take care of what remains. We did the initial work. You need to finish the work. And that finishing the work is to appoint elders in every city. That is a job. Crete is the largest Greek island in the Mediterranean Sea. It has 600 miles of coastline. And uh, to be given the assignment to... Uh, appoint elders in every city. You know, we look at a map, we look at Crete on a map, and it's just sort of a big, you know, dot, especially when the map's as small as, as mine is in the back of the Bible. But if you've ever been to Crete, I mean, it takes a couple of hours to drive from the north to the south. And I think, I know, it was the last time I was there, whatever, I was looking outside the bus just thinking about Titus' assignment. In every city, appoint elders. Every city. This would have been a lifetime assignment, huge assignment. Uh, I heard about a member of a church board that was undergoing the process of choosing a new pastor. And I don't know if you've ever had had to be on a board or a committee that chose a new pastor. I can't think of anything more grueling because it's like there's a lot at stake here, you know. And so anyway, one applicant after another continued to be rejected and so this board member stands up and says, look, I need to read another application letter from another applicant, and he reads it. Gentlemen, understanding that your pulpit is vacant, I'd like to apply for the position. I have many qualifications. I've been a preacher with much success, also had some success as a writer. Some say I'm a, say I'm a good organizer. I've been a leader in most places I've been. I'm over 50 years of age, and I've never preached in one place for more than three years. In some places, I've left town after my work has caused riots and disturbances. <laughs> I've got to admit that I've been arrested and incarcerated a few times, but not because I did anything wrong. My health is not that great, though I still get a lot, a great deal done. The churches I have preached in have been small, though in large cities. I don't get a well along with local religious leaders. In fact, some have threatened me and attacked me physically. I'm not very good at keeping records. I can't remember whom I baptized, but... If you can use me, I'll do my best for you. And of course, you know, the board members are irate thinking, why would we hire this old, unhealthy, absent-minded ex-jailbird? And of course, who was it signed?
0: The Apostle Paul. Exactly. You know, Dr. Paul Meyer said that hands down
1: the hardest job in America is not being president or even a school teacher, as difficult as those are. Dr. Meyer said that it's being a pastor's wife. Interesting. And the second hardest job is being a pastor. And that's because of the expectations that are placed on them. Oh, it's so unrealistic. I, as a vocation, was a pastor for 14 years back in another life. And it it had some wonderful things. And it also had some very difficult things. Because a pastor is expected to do everything from the plumbing to the preaching, from answering every question to answering every phone call. And about 20 years ago, I was actually in between ministries, and I was looking for a pastorate. And it, a horrible part is not only trying to find a, past, a pastor, another horrible part is trying to find a church, because you don't know who or what you're walking into. And so all most of these initial interviews went on the phone. And I... And it was running the gauntlet to go through these questions. First, got to fill out all this stuff, what do you believe, Yada yada. Some of it's cut and paste, but uh, some of it, you know, you actually got to talk to real people. And so I remember one phone call, they were asking me all sorts of questions, and they said, what do you think the, the job of the pastor is? So I told them. I said, here's what the Bible says the job of a pastor is. That's what I think the job of a pastor is. And then they said, okay, what's the job of the pastor's wife? (laughs) And I said, I think the job of the pastor's wife is to be the pastor's wife. And that's it. And that was one of the shorter interviews. (laughs) It's not a two-for-one position. Anyway, appoint elders in every city. This is the job. What a challenge. How do you find elders to go in every single city? Paul made it easier for Titus, or you might argue made it more difficult, by giving the criteria or the qualifications of elders or pastors. And he begins in verse 5, verse 6. He says, "...namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion." So this is where we begin. Um, the passage, really there's a little difference between the qualifications for elders or pastors. But let me just add that these qualifications are not just for elders, in the sense there certainly are, but this is something that we all should aspire to. And obviously women, you can't be the, the husband of one wife, but there's definitely character qualities here that we all should aspire to, all of us, men And women. And so don't check out thinking, oh, it's qualifications for elders. I'm not going to be an elder. I have no desire to be an elder. You know, what time are we going to be out of (laughs) here? Seriously, think about the qualifications here because it's much more than simply an elder. Um, That's a specific application. But first of all, he says that the man must be above reproach, above reproach. That, admittedly, can feel a little subjective, and so Paul gets specific about what above reproach looks like, and he says that he needs to be the husband of one wife, or literally the Greek says a one-woman man. And uh, obviously this prohibits polygamy, but the question we often ask is, does this prohibit divorce, or what about a widower who is remarried? Now, this is a long conversation and a long answer that I'm not uh, feeling the need to get into, but I think the fact that Paul says above reproach helps answer that question. In his current life, is he above reproach? God is clearly concerned with the man's character and his devotion to his wife. Faithfulness is what the Lord is after. And the NASB, at least anyway, my translation says having children who believe. And I'm not sure that's the best translation, honestly. Um, you may have one that says, in fact, I know, Harry, you've got the NIV or something there. What, well, you have NASB. Somewhere, I thought, over on this side of the room, when we talked about this before, it said having children who are faithful. Do you have a
0: translation that says that? What does what yours say? Okay. What does it say? Okay, having faithful children, and then
1: we describe what faithful children looks like. And that's helpful because when it says having children who believe, and then goes on to say not only are they, do they believe, but then it describes that believing as not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Um, so anyway, the main thing is his Christianity works at home. That's the bottom line, is that your Christianity works at home. uh, I once heard Howard Hendricks say, as only Howard Hendricks can, he said, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, don't export it.
0: (laughs) It's so true. If your Christianity doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. Who you are
1: at home is who you are. So let me ask you, who are you at home? No elbows now. <laughs> but who you are at home is who you are. Who you are in class is not who you are. I mean, we all look good. Most of us have bathed, you know. And it's, we can fake it for a good couple of hours on Sunday morning. And I'm, I'm, I know I'm making light of it, but the fact is, when we're at home, we're at ease. We're unguarded. Our words are often looser than they are here in class. And also, we're in, we're in the, the context of relationships that have no choice but to put up with us. So we can be kind, we can be unkind. They don't have a choice. Who you are at home is who you are. Obviously, your family knows you better than anyone else. I thought about this this week. Uh, don't make them have to lie at your funeral. (laughs) Don't make them have to lie at your funeral. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith. The fruit of the Spirit is our home. And if that list is too much, just focus on kindness, because that goes a long, long way. Well, verse 7, that's too convicting. Let's move on. Verse 7. The overseer, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self willed, not quick tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. So we're told here for the second time the overseer has to be above reproach. We saw it in verse 6. He says it again in verse 7. So you're above reproach at home. Now you're also above reproach, verse 7 in not doing these things. And he lists some things that the overseer should not do or should not be a pattern in his life. He must be above reproach, first of all, because he's God's steward. He is given a stewardship. He is given a responsibility. The the word here for steward literally means a manager. The original word for steward means a manager of a house. Or a family it stresses the idea that you're given a task and you're given responsibilities for a task so we're told first of all what a leader or a pastor or an elder should not be not self-willed what does that mean well it means you're not arrogant these words are referring basically to a habit or a custom not a bad day we've all got by bad days or bad moments But it's not calling for perfection. Otherwise, nobody, including the Apostle Paul, would qualify. But these qualifications, some of these are obvious. We won't go through all of them. Some of them are obvious. But pugnacious, that takes a little explanation. What does pugnacious mean? Pugnacious means that you don't like to argue. You're not a fighter. Then you get in a conversation with somebody that disagrees with you. You just immediately turn it into a conflict. How'd you like a pastor like that? I don't know. Maybe some of us have known pastors like that, that you feel like you're being spanked all the time as opposed to led and encouraged into the grace of God. So here's what, in contrast, a leader should be. We're told what they should not be. Now here's what they should be. Verse 8, but hospitable, loving what is good. Sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. That's a wonderful list. That is a tough list. Hospitable. Can this individual be around people, or does he just want to sit in his office all the time and do ministry without people? Honestly, that sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? You know the phrase, ministry would be great? If it weren't for the people. Exactly. He goes on, loving what is good, sensible, just, and devout. Again, loving what is good. This is obvious. Sensible. Okay, this is obvious. Uh, Just. We want a leader to be just, that the words and the decisions that he makes are fair, not biased. That is a hard, hard place to be in a context of a leader that is just not just. And devout, that's an important word. That this individual is not just teaching truth, but they actually have a walk with God. They actually love the Lord. They are devout. They have a spiritual life. And that spiritual life spills over into the lives of others. And then finally, self-controlled. Are they impulsive to cravings and lusts, or are they able to tap the brakes? And then we've got in verse 9 what people usually think of when they think of a pastor. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Yep, you've got to have these things. The pastor or the elder or the leader must be biblically literate. But notice in this list that a seminary education is not the primary qualification for a pastor or an elder. It's last. His character is first. And in that, his home life is first. That is the primary quality. We get the cart before the horse if we only content ourselves to look at how he can deliver the goods as opposed to whether or not he is a man of character. What is his home like? What are his kids like? It's a challenge because you can minister all day long. And
0: here's the thing. You can be right. But if you're a jerk or if you're controlling, you have no credibility.
1: So here's the first application that I'm pulling from the text here, and that is very simply, pray for your spiritual leaders. Pray for your spiritual leaders' lives in all areas. Pray for them. Pray for them. Because again, Satan hates these people. Being a pastor or an elder is a job that you can only do if you're called to it. Sort of like a teacher. I wonder sometimes if the reason that we pay teachers such lousy salaries is because that separates those who don't want to be there to those who feel a calling. It's the same way for pastors, by the way, that we don't pay much. You're not going to be there otherwise. If, uh, if you're not called. In fact, whenever a young man comes to me and asks whether or not I think he should go into the ministry, I say, look, if you can be content doing anything else, do it. Because it takes a calling. It's going to be hard. You're going to be talking to people that don't care about you any more than, than they care about a movie they're watching. We live in a consumer society, and it is so difficult to be a leader among people that don't look at you as a leader. They look at you as a preacher. They look at you as a, a motivational speaker. And if at any point it's too much, then we just cross our arms and we go check out the next church down the block. It wasn't that way. It couldn't be that way in the first century. You know, Your church was your church in a certain city, like it or not. Uh, a, there was a boy one time that uh, was watching his father, who was a pastor, write his sermon out. And the little boy asked his father, how do you know what to say? And the pastor father said, well, God tells me what to say. And the, the son says, well, then why do you keep crossing stuff out? Ah, <laughs> uh, That's great. That's, that's really good, isn't it? And when it comes to the Bible, we can't be crossing stuff out, you know. We can't be crossing it out. We've got to teach the whole word. There was another young boy suddenly announced to his mom, Mom, I've decided to become a minister when I grow up. She says, Really? What made you decide that? She, and the little boy says, Well, i got to go to church anyway on Sundays, and I figure it would be more fun to stand up and yell than to sit down and listen. <laughs> you know, I praise God that he has given us in this church a pulpit in which expository teaching occurs. We need God's Word. We don't need a pep talk, a feel-good talk, a motivational talk, or a stand-up comic. We need exposition from the Bible, the Word of God, explained, applied, and then lived out. A leader's got to spend time in the Word of God for a couple of reasons. First, to exhort in sound doctrine, Paul says, or preach, teach the word, teach the truth, but also to refute those who contradict. And by the way, there will be those who contradict the word of God. It was true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. In fact, we're introduced to them. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, meaning the Jews who don't believe in Jesus. Verse 11, who must be silenced, because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. There's the true motive. These empty talkers are contradicting us for the sake of money. Paul describes these men as opposite of what true leaders should be. We're told what true leaders should be, and now here is the opposite that need to be contradicted. They must be silenced, Paul says. And the word literally in the original language is muzzled. Think about a a muzzle on a dog. You could also think of the word as meaning gagged. That's a better picture, isn't it? Let's gag them. The word is used for putting a muzzle on an animal. They're teaching things they shouldn't teach simply for the sake of money. Verse 12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So Paul is quoting here. Notice that he's quoting. He says, one of themselves, meaning somebody from Crete, one of their own prophets, actually, is a man named Epimenides. He was a poet from the 6th century BC. Paul quotes Epimenides two times in the, uh, in the New Testament, once here in Titus and also once uh, when Paul was in Athens. You remember when Paul was standing on Mars Hill in Athens and he says, uh, what does he say? Um, he says something great. You should read it, Acts chapter 17. <laughs> Yeah, you, we're all sons, uh, we're all sons of, uh, of God, something like that, exactly. But he's quoting Epimenides, and he basically say, quotes a pagan poet, Say, you know what, the guy's right. Cretans are, to quote Epimenides, lazy, you know, and he says, for this reason, reprove them. They're gluttons, they're liars, they're evil beasts. And in verse 13, he says, this is true. So reprove them severely, that they may be sound in the faith and not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Point them to the Bible. Don't point them to myths and commandments of people. We are not beholden to myths. We don't have to obey myths, and we don't have to obey the commandments of people, but rather the Word of God. It is so much easier to be a mystic than it is to be biblically literate. Understanding the Bible's tough work. I've made a lifetime study of this book and I've barely scratched the surface, just like you have. We're in the thing all the time and we're always learning. We never get to the point where we think, you know what, I pretty much got this wrapped up. I'll just start reading stuff from the self help corner of Barnes and Noble now. No, don't. Read the Word over and over and over and over. It is like food we read it, we digest it, we live it, we come back for more all the time. It's eternal. And then Paul concludes this section verse 15. He says, "To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any Good deed. He's taken all of chapter one to get to the theme of the book of Titus, and that is good deeds. Good deeds. We're going to see that many times now as the book continues. But he says this in verse 15 what does this mean to the pure? All things are pure. Um, It's sometimes misunderstood to mean that if you're right with God, anything's okay with God. That's not what it means. The context of this is probably from the culture probably is what Paul meant was, that to the pure, in other words, those who are saved, those in the, in the sight of God, that he sees them as pure, all things are pure, meaning all foods. You can eat anything. It's that, and again, the context of the Jewish uh, myths and the commandments of men are probably trying to restrain them from eating certain foods. And Paul is saying, let's get practical. If you're a Christian, you can eat anything you want. We're not bound by the Old Testament law. But then he says, to the unpure, those who are defiled, um, meaning unbelievers, eating or not eating certain food doesn't improve your standing with God. You can obey the Old Testament law and be kosher, but that doesn't make you any more saved than a lost Gentile. You need faith in Christ. And then, of course, verse 16, what we read is so convicting because it's tempting to want to say, you know, we're talking about the hypocrisy of these false teachers, We are, but the implication also to these Cretans who need to be rebuked, and to us if we're honest, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. So let me ask you a question Do your deeds affirm
0: your doctrine? Does your Christian life affirm what you say you believe, or is it a contradiction? That's convicting. Um, I, I have to ask myself the same
1: thing because if we tell our people at our job we're a Christian or the people in our neighborhood know we're Christians or we drive around on the highway with a fish on our car, don't do that. Or we pray at meals at restaurants and then we're rude to our servers. We're contradicting ourselves. We say we know God Here's something else. You know, we could say that our families at home know the truth about us, but if we were to ask other people, would they say that you know God? Can people know that you know the Savior without you actually saying the J word? Could they see that there's something different in your life and in my life? That's a very convicting question, but it's
0: a helpful one because Paul says it. They profess to know God by their deeds. They deny Him. They deny Him.
1: We can think about the people in our lives whose lives have matched their faith. So in the couple of minutes that we have left, I want you to think about a person in your life who not only was a Christian, but actually lived it in such a way that that it inspired you. So here's what I want you to do. Just uh, as I'm going to kind of sweep the room like this with my hand. And as I do this, just shout out their first name, okay? Maybe you could say dad or mom or my pastor or whatever, or, you know, Billy, whatever their name was. But let's just do that. You got the person in your mind? Who is that individual? Okay, so let's, let's do that.
0: So we'll start over here. Mike, you got anybody? Okay, let's just keep, let's keep going. Just shout it out. Beautiful. These are people, real people,
1: who have taken the hard work of the Bible and applied it in their lives. And to this list, I would add my dad, Walt. They are models, they've inspired us. So let's do the same. Let's live lives that inspire others and lives of good deeds. That's the theme of Titus. We're going to look much more into that as we get into chapter 2 and 3. Paul gets very specific about how we can do this. And uh, I promise you, next time, it will be very encouraging and, of course, very convicting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Paul as we read in the, the book of Acts, which ends with his first imprisonment. And yet we know from the epistles that he continued to write that he was released, that he continued, in spite of his imprisonment, not to be hush-hush and quietly retire, but to continue to do the hard work of faithfulness for Jesus Christ, writing First Timothy, going with Titus to Crete, leaving Titus there, and challenging him with this letter to complete the work that's been done, first and foremost, by appointing elders. And the, the difficulty of finding individuals like this was as much as it was in Paul's day as it as it is in ours. So Lord, we pray for our leaders, not only here at our church, but in the body of Christ across the world, that you would fill pulpits and churches and committees and pews with people of character, just like Paul is describing here. And Father, may it begin with us. May we just not pray for others to get it right. But but may we also pray for ourselves and have the courage to let our deeds match our doctrine and that we would not simply be those who profess to know God, but we would also live lives in that way. We also ask, Father God, that you would give us uh, the strength as we press on in the Christian life to not be discouraged to the point of just giving up. May we never get to that point that you've given us a hope that is living because our lord Jesus has raised from the dead and he's coming back and his promise is not has not failed that he is returning for us and that he will take us to be with him forever and forever this is our hope and in the meantime we continue to strive we continue to live in faithfulness and we pray in Jesus name amen, amen. Oh let's find a cool spot. <laughs> All right,
0: thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Wayne. It's great to have you back with us. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.